Here's an institution that has changed dramatically over the last couple of generations. That institution is marriage. What's your view of marriage? Is it a lifelong relationship as created and defined by God? Or is it a social arrangement between or among people subject to the whims and preferences of the day? Today on Craving Answers, Craving God, let's talk about marriage. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, as a pastor, I know you do premarital counseling for couples that want to be married in the church. I know you do a fair amount of counseling with couples that are working through marital difficulties. Based on your own personal experience, do you think that the institution of marriage is in trouble? Yes, I... uh you say based on my own personal experience, the lead into that question was about me counseling. Actually, based upon my own personal experience as a husband, I think the institution of marriage is in trouble. Uh, I have a lot What of, in the world does that mean? Well, I've been a really, I am still struggling to be a better husband, but I have a history of being a very, very bad husband. And uh, I know what it's like to experience firsthand the pressures um, the pressures that come from my own sinful self and the pressures that come from our culture. And I know what it's like to uh, give into those pressures, to the pressures that create bad marriages. And so, yeah, based upon my own personal experience, not just in counseling, but especially in my own marriage, and you can ask, you can ask Angela, my wife, and she'll tell you all kinds of stories about how I've done um, a great amount of damage to, to my family and to my relationship with her. And I think because of that and because I, I, I do tell people about my experience and um, the sins that I've committed, I think that people, I end up doing a fair amount of marriage counseling just because I think people feel safe talking to somebody who's just as screwed up, if not more screwed up than they are. But it, it, your, you know, your question is marriage in trouble. I, I, it's always been in trouble. It's never been easy. I do think, though, that today it is especially under attack. And a part of that is the times that we live in. Um, philosophically, and we've talked about this before, a lot of us are committed to the notion. See, one of the problems is we're committed to two separate notions. And one is that that I will only be truly actualized and satisfied if I am completely in control of my own life. If I'm making my own decisions and doing what I want to do, that's really the only way for me to be fulfilled the second notion, which combats that uh, very, very intensely, is that I can only be truly fulfilled and happy if I'm having some sort of transcendent, romantic, and or sexual experience, which that's going to involve somebody else. And those two things honestly butt heads with each other all the time in marriages. And you see this, people want a good marriage, but they want the other person to do what they tell them to do. They want to have, you know, they, they want to have this mind-blowing, transcendent, romantic experience. But the other person is a human being that they want to have this experience with who has their own ideas about what to do. And because of that, marriages face an intense amount of strain. The pressures upon it, uh, the, the, the torque that these, that, you know, the physics of relationships put on ourselves in our marriage is intense. And so marriages, by and large, are—I um, I do think that's 
it's a good way to start, I guess, is to, is to say that I think that they are under stress right now, and, and more so perhaps than in times past. So you went through, <clears throat> excuse me, you went through a valley with your wife and your family, um, a tough period. That's not unusual. Families go through those kinds of things all the time. Do you think that as difficult as that period of time might have been that it has perhaps affected you in such a way as to improve your perspective on certain things, uh, having come through that as opposed to maybe never having dealt with that kind of adversity at all? Yes. Uh, yes. That's a tough one. So you say valley. It's way more than a valley. It was almost very nearly a, a death blow for my marriage. If I say yes to your question, it's largely because I believe in a good God who can even transform evil into good. I do believe that, and there have been lots of good things that have come out of that. One is is that, uh, so I, yeah. One one is is that I've learned that the way I need to relate to Angela is primarily from the posture of repentance. And I'm, I'm not I'm, sure I know what that means. Okay, I'm slow to learn this, but it's I, I can't I can't relate to another human being from the posture of. I'm right and you're wrong and you need to be fixed. I have to constantly be asking, and it doesn't, I'm not saying at all that Angela is right all the time and I'm not, but I, I need to constantly be asking for forgiveness for the screwed up things that I do. Anytime there's a disagreement or a point of tension between us, now on, the, on this side of what Angela and I went through, what I put us through, I almost always think, well, this is probably my fault. It's always been my fault. I usually end up screwing things up because I'm selfish and I'm absorbed and uh, I tend to think of Angela and other people, my friends, my kids as uh, as people who exist for my benefit. And so that's helped me. That's helped me be way, way more humble than I was before all of this, where I was sure that like I had it figured out and I knew the answers. And now I know that that's not the case. I, it would be, it would be the height of idiocy to look at myself in the mirror and say, oh, Aaron, you've got it all together. You know what's going on. You're a good guy. I just know, I know that that's not true. So when you're sitting in your office or wherever you might be, and you're talking to a, a young couple who wants to get married, or you're talking to a couple who is married and is not doing very well, mm -hmm. how has your experience put you in a position maybe to better understand what people are saying to you, better react to it, yeah. be a better counselor? Yeah. So I've done it. I've done that. I've sat on the couch, the, the counselor's couch and lied to my wife and lied to the counselor. I've sat there and tried to play games to try to manipulate and spin conversations to make it look like Angela's wrong and I'm right. I've walked into a counseling session and said, let's work on this. But pretty soon into the session, it's clear that I'm not rooting for Angela or for us. I'm just rooting for myself to be right. And I, I, uh, um, I know what that's like. I know what that's like. And so I can see those things and I can help people see kind of what the big issues are. It's just a, a real quick example, and this is not a concrete example. I don't have anything specific in mind. Lots of times couples will come in and there'll, there'll be an argument over 
some decision that got made with the kids two, three or four years ago. And they're still arguing over this and it comes back up and, you know, they'll be like, okay, let's just forget about it and move on. But then there'll be an argument a couple months from now and there it'll be popping up again. And one of the things I do is I try to get them to understand that you're not really arguing about that decision with the kids that's gone, that's passed. It's, you can't change it. What you're arguing about is who's in charge here and who's going to get their way. And you're also determined to show the other person that you are wrong. You messed up. So uh, this is very, it's kind of negative side. I can see all that junk that people do. I'm not perfect, of course, I, you know, it, but it does help to have gone through it. And I, I assume the worst in husbands when they come in and they're, and they're acting a certain way. I'm just like, I've been there. I know the games you're playing, but here, here's the flip side though, is that I, I'm also able to give hope. I'm also able to say to people, Hey, I know this feels really bad. I know this feels like this is going downhill fast. I know this feels like um, you don't like each other right now and you never will like each other again and it's just hopeless and it'd be better just to scrap the whole thing and start over fresh with a new life. But I'm telling you that I've been in a spot just like you're in where you feel like this is broken. I don't have any feelings for this person. It's done. And then I'm telling you that there will be a point in time in the future that if you work on this and if you submit yourself to God and to each other, and if you're rooting for yourself as a couple, that you will feel all kinds of good romantic feelings. You'll make all kinds of good decisions together. You'll have all kinds of fun together. You just have to do this. So I'm able to give hope as well. I see the bad stuff, but I'm also, I'm also because God's rescued my marriage and me, I'm also able to see the hope as well. So you talked about submitting yourselves to God. Is, is it true? I mean, it sounds like kind of religious, I don't know. One of those things we like yeah. to say as religious people. <laughs> yeah. Is it churchy. true that God instituted marriage? Yes, that's absolutely true. I um, I don't know how much I should argue for this for our unbelieving listeners, but um, uh, God instituted marriage. I I want to th- let's think about it though, less in terms of God being like, well, let's you know, God sitting around and being like, well, let me make up something for them to do. You know, let's how can they make babies? You know, how can they share life with each other? Let's, let's figure out something. <clears throat> it's less that God made this rule. Like, here's what I'm going to, I'm going to give you guys this marriage thing. And more like when we say God instituted marriage, more like it flows out of God's character. It's actually a part of who God is. Uh, the Bible insists, Christianity insists that God's not this, you know, this solo man sitting up in the sky you know, looking down at the game board that we call creation, that God is actually in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have loved each other and been committed to each other and have served each other and enjoyed each other and been passionate about each other into infinity past. And when God created us in his image, he created us for that relationship. He created us to have those kinds of relationships because that's the way he is, and he wants us to be the same way. And one of the best ways that we can look like that is to get married. Now, marriage is not for everybody, of course, and not everybody gets married, and everybody's unmarried sometimes, and a vast majority of people, I should vast majority, a lot of people um, are, you know, are unmarried, married, and then later on unmarried for whatever reason, divorce or, you know, the spouse passes away. So it's not that this is just, it's not that you can only experience what it's like to look like God if you're married. That's not the case. 
It is true that you can only experience what it looks like, God, in relationship, because God is relationship. And so uh, marriage being one of the first ways that God shows us how this works uh, in the Bible is one of the clearest ways. And so when we say God instituted marriage, it's that marriage flows out of who he, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, and by participating in it, we actually begin to look like who God is. Now, for un- for, for my unbelieving friends who are listening, um, <clears throat> let me just encourage you to think about one of the first questions when I do premarital counseling, one of the first questions I ask couples is, why? Are, so why do you want to get married? And a lot of times, I mean, there's a ton of different answers for this. A lot of times, it's very sort of personal, you know, well, because this person is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. A lot of times it's experiential. I, you know, they'll say something like, well, this is just, it feels like, you know, we, we really love each other. And this feels like the next, next step that we should be taking in this relationship with each other. But all of them, you know, what's behind all of that is this, you know, one of the questions I guess, so, okay, so why not just move in with each other and like love each other? And a lot of times it's because they have this, even if they don't know what it is, there's this sense that there's something different and special about marriage. And people who choose not to get married frequently know that there's something different and special and the way they've seen it lived out in the past, maybe through their own parents and house growing up. They're like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. You know, I th- I thought marriage is always supposed to be this real special thing, and that's not the way I've seen it experienced. Or you know, I've I I was married before and it was horrible, and never again, or something like that. But behind all of those things is the notion that marriage is or should be special. Now, why is it that we think that way? Let me just encourage our unbelieving friends to think about this. The reason why you think that marriage should be something special. The reason, in fact, why you think that there, even if we're not talking about marriage, that there should be a transcendent romantic relationship to fulfill you is because you were made for more than solo living. You were made for more than to be a lone ranger. And you sense that. You sense that life is missing something if there's not somebody special to live it with. And the reason why you sense that is because you were made in God's image. It's the only way to explain it. You were made to be in relationship. It's not just a socially conditioned thing where everything works better. You know, if uh, you know, we kind of like learned if you know, if I have a partner, everything works smoothly. That's not the case. Sometimes being married doesn't make things work smoothly. What is the case though is that there's something deep inside of us that longs for a relationship where we are known and we know. And the only thing that explains that is that we were made by a God who's already in relationship and we're made to look like that. It is often said that marriage is the union of one man and one woman for life. Yet, going back to the Old Testament, Jacob had four wives. David had eight. (laughs) And Solomon, he was the champ. He had 700 wives, not to mention another 300 concubines. Yeah. So can you explain to me again the one man, one woman thing? Yes. So covenant commitment. Um, God wants us to exist. God exists, and you know, God makes Adam and Eve. Uh, they rebel against him and fall. God figures out a plan. I'm telling you the whole story of the Bible in 10 seconds. God figures out a plan to rescue his human creations so that he can be in relationship with them. We call that covenant. 
God is covenantly committed to his people. He's completely faithful. He's completely loyal to them. His uh, love for them never fades. Um, When God wants us to picture that, to embody that, he designed us to be in covenant commitment like he's in covenant commitment with us. And what that means is that marriage, which is the closest to the heart of this covenant commitment, God designed to be a mutual, faithful, monogamous relationship. I cannot be covenant covenantly committed to Angela if I'm sleeping with a bunch of other women. I That's not faithfulness to her in the way that God is faithful to us. Now, the Bible tells the story of a lot of people, many of whom are, quote, good guys, unquote, who have lots of wives. Um, and this has been confusing for people. They've said, well, look at that, you know, that's what are we going to do with that? Well, so the Bible starts off by saying, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will cleave to each other, become one flesh. That's in Genesis chapter 2. And then it goes on to show, tell the stories of a lot of people who don't live like that. And every time that's described in the Bible, every time you see a story of a dude with multiple wives, you will see heartbreak and destruction. You'll see families torn apart every single time. It's, it doesn't matter if you're talking about Abraham. It doesn't matter if you're talking about Jacob. It doesn't matter if you're talking about David or Solomon or all of them. It will always be destructive every time because every time we don't do sex the way God wants us to, every time we don't use our money the way God wants us to, every time we don't treat our kids or our parents or our neighbors the way God wants us to, there's always destruction. And the Bible is not, you know, the Bible's not Aesop's fables. It doesn't tell little stories, and then God pops his head in and says, now, kids, this is the, this is the maxim. Don't do this at home. Don't only have one spouse. Instead, what the Bible does is it tells us what God wants, and then it shows us stories, and sometimes people act the way God wants them to, and it works out well, and sometimes people don't, and you just get to sit there and see the brokenness and the destruction. And it's meant to be, you know, it's meant to be a lesson. Don't don't be like that. Don't do that. You know what's confusing about that, and I hear what you're saying. Uh, it makes sort of sense in the context of the way we've talked about these things in the present era, whenever we talk about the subject of marriage. But it it seems inconsistent, and it gives me pause. It even maybe is are the seeds of doubt when. We have Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. We have Genesis 2, as you pointed out. Seems to be a fairly clear model based on relationship, as you pointed out, a deep kind of relationship, the kind that God has with his people. And then along comes Solomon, and Solomon is gifted by God with great wisdom. Mm-hmm. He becomes king of Israel, maybe the richest man, certainly in his territory in yeah. his day, just more wealth than he could probably count. He enjoys all these blessings while pretty much violating to the nth degree this business about one man, one woman. Right. And there are some of us, I think, who think, hey, that's not consistent. God should not be blessing Solomon. He should be cursing Solomon, yeah. but he doesn't. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So, so Solomon, if you keep on reading in the story, it's very clear the, that the, the narrators and um, – in the books of Kings and Chronicles, the narrators very explicitly point out that Solomon's women turned his heart away from his God. Solomon Solomon married all these women, and they they took his heart away from worshiping the one true God. 
And so it's, that's actually one example where it is explicit, like this is bad stuff that's happened. Uh, the other side of this, though, is that if if we imagine that Solomon needed to be perfectly sexually faithful to one woman in order for God to bless him, nobody would ever get blessed. God doesn't bless perfect people because that's not who exists. God blesses us because he loves us. And this is not an excuse to sin. It's, I'm not saying at, at all you can you can just live your life the way you want and and you know and then demand blessing from God. But the fact is is that God does bless greedy people. He does bless swindlers. He does bless adulterers. He does you know he does bless people with bad tempers because his blessing flows out of his covenant sovereign love for us and grace. Not it's not a reward. God's blessing to us is not rewards for good deeds done on his behalf. It's completely sovereign grace. So you do see God giving Solomon a lot of blessing because God loved Solomon. God wanted to give him blessing. God did not approve of the way he treated women. He did not approve of that at all. But there's a lot of things about me and you that God doesn't approve of, and yet he still continues to bless us. And all we can do is say, you know, thank you, God, for not rewarding me according to what I've done or my just desserts. I, do, do, you know, every time do I lose my temper? Do I want a lightning bolt from heaven hitting me? No, I, I need grace. I won't exist. Now, I, I do I do want help with my temper, but I think the only help I'm going to get with my temper is if there's a God who's loving enough to keep on blessing me and working with me on that. Not a God who dings me every time I do something wrong, because then I'm just going to be dinged to death, literally. And so that's we see that with Solomon. I see that in my own life, too. So we've spent uh, our first minutes of discussion here, I think, pretty much elevating the institution of marriage putting it on a high pedestal, maybe one of the most important things among human relationships, maybe the most important. Then we come to 1 Corinthians 7. Paul seems to take a dim view of marriage, seems to be running in the opposite direction. He says, quote, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. Yes, as I am. He holds himself out as a model yeah. of singleness and, uh, and how good that is. Then he says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's almost a concession. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul seems to be saying marriage is a kind of a fallback option if one can't control his or her sex drive. What's your take? Yeah, Paul does Paul does seem to say that. And, and I think that there's some truth in that, too. That, um, you know, the, the unmarried... Being unmarried, there's a there's a, a, a real amount of freedom. Paul will say later on in that chapter too that like the unmarried person is free to serve the Lord as much as they want. Uh, but he also says it's a calling. If you've been called to be married, that's where. You, if you've been called, he uses the you know the, he talks about being called. If you've been called to be unmarried, that's what God wants for you. Paul, as an unmarried person, and we don't know we don't know about. We, we don't know his story. We, we don't know if he was never married or if his wife died or if, you know, perhaps he had a wife who ended up leaving him when he became a Christian. We, we don't know his story. But he is saying, Paul, for Paul, from his perspective, is a traveler. He's on the road all the time, uh, and he's uh, working in churches, and he doesn't make a lot of money. And he kind of uh, lives on other people's generosity in these churches that he that he starts and goes to. And so from Paul's perspective, there's something freeing about not being married. So it says later on, you know, the, uh, um, 
The spouse's concern is with their spouse, but the unmarried person's concern is with the Lord. He's like, I can devote a lot of time to worshiping and to serving and loving Jesus that unmarried that that married people can't because they have wives and kids and husbands and kids that they have to devote themselves to. So I, I you know, you know, he's not. Um, he says a lot of things in this chapter that are really, really good and helpful about marriage. Paul has a high view of marriage, but he also has a high view of his own calling and how he's. And I, I read a I read a book a couple of years ago. It was, a, it was the memoir of Hans Kung, who uh, just recently passed away. He was a, a Roman Catholic priest and a professor, and um, he wrote about his uh, his life as you know as a Roman Catholic priest. And there's a part of me that read that and thought, man, I could get so much done if I didn't have a wife and kids. But of course, the big, what much bigger part, the 90% of me is like, I need a woman. And I could not imagine a world where my kids don't exist. Uh, you know, I would not want that. But if you, can, if you can do that, if you can live, look, if you can be unmarried, here's what Paul's saying. If you can be unmarried and be faithful to Jesus, and not succumb to sexual temptation, then that's a great option for you. Being like me is a good deal. However, if you're going to try to be, uh, you know, if you're going to try to be, well, I'm going to, so Paul's spiritual and he's unmarried. I'm not going to get married too. I'm just going to devote myself to the Lord. And if sexually you can't swing that, if you cannot control your sexual desires, then please, he's saying, get married. Don't, don't burn. Don't, don't throw yourself into don't throw yourself unnecessarily into a life of sin just out of some sort of like false pursuit of holiness. But if you don't struggle with sexual desire, sexual temptation, then um, singleness is for you. I personally, I can't do the unmarried life. I would definitely burn. And so I have a wife and kids, but if that's not the case for somebody, then good. In Hebrews 8, there is a description of the Old Testament priests who, quote, offer gifts according to the law, unquote. And the writer to Hebrews says, again, quoting, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, unquote, talking about the tabernacle or the temple, that place, which turns out to be sort of a subset of a larger reality in that heavenly realm or that ethereal realm, whatever, however we describe that. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So my question is, is temporal marriage in this life in any way a copy or shadow of the coming marriage between Christ and his bride, the church? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so it starts off, we talked a few minutes ago, it starts off in the the beginning of the story with God creating marriage as a way to reflect who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then at the end of the story, we're told that that those that those whom Christ has redeemed, there is a coming marriage between, like you just said, Chuck, that there's a coming marriage between Christ and those whom he has redeemed. And this means that what our marriages are now they point back to who we are as made in the images of God. They point back in time. They point forward in time to the destiny that God has planned for his people, that he's going to be one with them forever and ever. He's going to dwell with them, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. And what that means is that right now, in our marriages, for those of you who are married or who are going to be married, 
that that means that right now in our marriage, we have what our marriages are designed to do are to point to who God is and who he created us to be looking like him. But also they're designed to point forward to this ultimate reality where God is going to make all things new. And he's going to put us into perfect relationship with himself and with each other. And, and marriage is a great way. This is why it's so important that 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 marriages work, that marriages be an embodied principle of the nature of God and the story of God, God's character and God's promise to redeem his people in Jesus Christ. Marriages can be an excellent description of that. In fact, Paul in, in Ephesians 5, Paul says, um, at one point Paul says, um, which is kind of a larger conversation in, in Ephesians 5, but let me just pick out a little bit of it here and say that Paul says that um, um, he quotes Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh. And Paul says, I'm ta- this is a mystery, and the mystery is Christ, basically Christ's love for his church. Marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. And so our marriages are designed to image that. So... If I were to say, if we want to understand, if we want to have a good understanding of the institution of marriage, Mm -hmm. then we need to look at the way that is is depicted in the Bible as the relationship between God and his people. Yes. We need to think about divorce in the context of that. We need to think about sexual morality and sexual purity in the context of that, would that be a correct statement? Yes, very much so. All of those topics, all of those topics have to be filtered through the nature of God and the story of his plan to rescue the world through Jesus. All of them have to. If we start looking at marriage and sex and divorce in terms of our culture's values, it's going to be screwed up. If, if, in other words, if we if we start thinking about marriage, sex, and divorce in terms of romance, you know, romance being one of the dominant features of the way humans have, um, it's it's one of the ways humans find value, and it's it's always been the case, romance, but especially for the past two hundred years, is a reaction against the cold hard logic of the Enlightenment is the Romantic movement, and you know we see this as you know just sort of crassly at the end of. Uh, you know, rom-coms where they, you know, they kiss and then the screen fades to black and everything ends happily ever after, you know, the couple gets together. And if we start thinking about marriage and um, sex and divorce in terms of romance, which is what our culture wants us to do, it's going to be screwed up because honestly, marriages aren't always romantic. And if you think that marriage has to be romantic for it to be valid, then you're going to be tempted to to bail. And I talk to people like this all the time. I've talked to people who've actually said to me, said to me, "Well, doesn't God want me to be happy?" And what they mean is, is I'm in this marriage and I'd like to get out of it. It's kind of crummy. And doesn't God want me to have romantic experiences? And the answer is yes, but that's not the most important thing He wants. But God knows that romantic experiences. And honestly, like if you if you're struggling in your marriage, you can get get a hold of me. But here's here's a pro tip for you: romantic experiences are important, but they're level four. Level one is covenant commitment. Level four, you never get to level four if you don't have level one. There's a cheap way to get to level four. You know, when you first get married and it's all exciting and everything, 
sort of easy to get to level four. But over time, level four becomes more difficult. Romance becomes more difficult if the covenant commitment is not there. In fact, it becomes impossible because you know, you're only ever going to be turned on by somebody that you have an emotional, psychological connection with. It's, it's, the, the physical doesn't lead to the emotional. The, emotional lead, the psychological leads to the physical in terms of, uh, of attraction. However, if you follow what God says and you start to frame marriage and sex in terms of covenant commitment, that covenant commitment will always lead to romance. Now, not, not 100% of the time. But if you're covenantly committed, that will breed. That's a breeding ground for romance. Covenant commitment, you know, this, this, I'm, I am here for you, no questions asked. I'm about you. That leads to psychological intimacy. What I'm talking about is like conversations, uh, spending time together. Conversations and spending time together always will always lead to romance. Always lead to romance. I had a, I had a counseling professor in seminary who said, Men have affairs with women with big ears. And, and what he meant was is men typically, in, in spite of like the uh, sort of uh, uh, crash de- crass depiction of men as just like sexual animals who only care about sex, typically men have affairs with people whom they develop psychological connections with at work or in the neighborhood, whatever it is. That's how affairs get started. It's not usually that somebody's like, oh, I just want to sleep with somebody. I just need somebody to sleep with. It starts with conversations. It starts with trusting somebody. It starts with telling somebody about who you are. Well, that, that's covenant commitment stuff. You covenant committed to your covenantly committed to your spouse. You share yourself with them. That's going to lead to romance. But if we twist that around like our culture wants us to do, marriage is just going to be an entire mess, which is what we see. And so, I guess what Chuck, what you and I can do today is just call people to believers or unbelievers, is to call people to. A radical covenant commitment to their spouse, even if they don't feel like it, trusting that because God designed our relationships to look like him, that will lead to intimacy and romance, and that's going to lead to a healthy marriage. One more quick question here. I've heard that sometimes a person who has lost a spouse is looking forward to and expecting to be reunited with that spouse in heaven or in the resurrection. Right, yeah. Jesus says in Matthew 22... In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, yeah. but are like angels in heaven. Yeah. If we find that to be discouraging, <laughs> yes. how do we interpret it? Yeah, so that's a famous Mark Twain line about Christians, you know, very near the end of his life. I might have quoted this in here before. Very cynically, he said, uh, you know, Christians, they take the most enjoyable thing that humans experience, sex, and then they say, in, the, you know, in heaven, you, you won't get any of that. Like, what kind of sense does that make? And I would say this is that if our destiny is the marriage supper of the Lamb, that what, you know, the, the, you know, sex is beautiful and it's a wonderful gift of God and it's meant to be enjoyed, but it's actually pointing to, I think everybody here knows. So whether you're married and you're super faithful to your spouse and you have a really strong regular sex life, or if you are an unbeliever and you're living in a, you're living a hookup life and uh, you're sleeping around with a bunch of people. All of us know that sex never actually gives us the fulfillment that we think it's going to. It's, it's great. It's wonderful, but it never actually solves all my problems. It's never this portal to this world of like pure bliss. It's always, you know, it's temporary or it's awkward or 
it's good, but like I said, temporary. You just have to keep on doing it if you want that feeling. And what the Bible is teaching us with this story of God creates marriage to reflect him, God um, is using marriage to point towards this future uh, intimacy that we're going to have with God and each other. What God is doing is he's saying that what you think you're going to get from sex, you're going to get in the new creation, but it will be different than what you, it'll be different than what you experience now, but it will be better. C.S. Lewis has this funny line. I know I'm kind of running on long here. C.S. Lewis has this funny line where he says, you know, all of us adults were like, there's no sex in the new creation. Oh, I don't get it. That sounds lousy to me. C.S. Lewis says it's like telling a kid, it's telling a little boy, hey, the most pleasurable experience in the world is sex. And he thinks, well, that must have something to do with chocolate, I bet. Because all he can think about in terms of like the most pleasurable experience is eating chocolate. He can't imagine that there's anything better than that. And what Lewis is saying is we're kind of little kids in our understanding of the way relationships work. And right now what we imagine is, is that sex is the greatest thing ever. But there's something when we grow up in the new creation, what we'll see is that sex was amazing, but there's something that's even better than that that we experience. That's organically tied to it, but finally fulfilled in the new creation when we're one with Jesus and one with each other. Well, I think I could go on for another half hour here, but uh, we may have exhausted our time here. Um, so what do you think about maybe picking up a Marriage 2 podcast? Yeah, we could talk some, about this some, some more yep. in the future. We thank you for spending some time with us here on Craving Answers, Craving God. Other recent shows address topics like sin, repentance, and prayer. Just put Craving Answers, Craving God into your search engine and sample the more than 40 shows that are at your disposal. For Pastor Miller, I'm Chuck Rathard, wishing you God's blessings.